and welcome to Cocoa Pods, a podcast of the Broad Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. We want to welcome from the UK, Dr. Anthony Akenswa, fondly called Dr. Text, to Cocoa Pods podcast. Cocoa Pods podcast is a podcast of the Broad Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation and Maternal Morbidity and Mortality Reduction Academy, where we learn about and discuss issues that focus on reducing the number of women being very sick or dying from pregnancy and pregnancy-related issues. My name is Dr. Bola Sogadi. I'm a board-certified obstetrician gynecologist and I'm a proponent for women's health care. Dr. Text, today we start with the issue of gender differences, personality disorders, gender identity, and sexual assault. The issue of gender differences in the diagnosis of personality disorders has received much attention. Certain personality disorders may occur more in women, things like borderline personality disorders, and others may occur more in men, such as obsessive-compulsive personality disorders. Dr. Text, can you please explain the different personality disorders to us and explain why they are purported to be more common in one gender compared to the other? Thank you so much, um, Dr. Shogade. Before I start, I'd just like to say that um, I'm really grateful. I feel very honored and privileged to be able to participate in a conversation such as you you have arranged and to be in some way given an opportunity to affiliate myself with the good work that you're doing. I really believe in the social justice nature of the work you do, and I can only wish you good luck. And any way I can help, please do let me know. The other thing I was going to say is that, uh, please, just call me Anthony. Actually, text goes back to when I was in secondary school. I went to the international school in Ibadan, and there was a wrestler then called Tex McKenzie. And I don't know, I was tall, I was slim, I had a smile on my face, and so they just started calling me that. So, But professionally, people just kind of know me as Anthony, so, so that we don't confuse your audience. I think Anthony just works. Don't Please don't bother about the doctor. So that's my way of introduction, so thank you once again. I think to answer the question about personality disorders, it might be a good idea to just say a few words on what personality is as well. The way I tend to take think of personality is what I would call the fingerprints of our existence. So we all do know that if we know somebody very, very well, it doesn't matter if the person goes to do the most elaborate cosmetic surgery. The people who know the person would know that's that person, maybe in another body or look different, but that's the person, that's the way the person reacts. Those are the emotions the person has. That's the way the person copes with stress. So personality is uh, the inner um, traits, behavioral characteristics, emotions, our ways of coping, the hobbies that we're engaging, um, the way we we react in extreme situations, the behavioral patterns we have. That's what personality is. And different people have tried to describe personality in different ways. And then the question now we ask ourselves is, what is a normal personality? Because if you're saying personality disorder, then you're you're implying that there's something that's normal and then anything else is not normal. I don't know that we've got that construct even after years and years of psychological research and 
various psychometric tests. I don't know that we can clearly say this is what is normal. What we do know is that some people's range and pattern of behaviors causes problems to them and problems within the environment in which they operate. And I guess that's where we now start thinking about personality disorder coming in. And obviously, once I bring in the word environment, then I'm indirectly bringing in culture, expectations. So again, I'll give you a simple example, and I hope I'm not going to say anything politically incorrect. It wasn't lost on me once when I visited Nigeria to see that the driver of my dad who was taking me around just couldn't understand why I didn't like him hooting his horn. I mean, if you got to where he was taking me to, you honk your, you hoot your horn and people come to open the gate and you go in. But I prefer to get out of the car and talk to the security staff. But it wasn't also lost to me that the security staff, because I got out of the car, they just assumed that I couldn't be somebody important. And so their first reaction was to, in a more than in a less than friendly way or a slightly more hostile way, say, what do you want here? Who do you want to see? But I didn't go out dressed very well, elaborately and things like that. So the criteria, the, the expectation is that if you're a person of importance, you don't need to come out of your car and people would come to you. And that's the dynamic. But I think I'd slightly changed. And so I was behaving in a slightly different way. And there was no personality disorder amongst both the security staff and myself, which was just expectations. And that's why I, I, I say that these are very, very difficult concepts. But if we just say, well, the research says we've got borderline personality, histrionic, and various personalities you talked about, we are more likely to diagnose personality disorders amongst female patients. I agree with that. But I don't know if that's a true interpretation of things or a spurious one. I think that we're more likely to say men have mental health issues as in terms of a psychosis or something because they are men. And when it's a lady, we're more likely to just say it's personality disorder. I would prefer that it may actually be an equal distribution if we drill down into what our definition of personality disorder is and mental disorder. And I think that just by nature of the cultural differences, men may express themselves in a slightly different way. I'll just digress a bit like depression. And we used to think that men didn't suffer with depression. But now I think many psychologists and psychiatrists will agree that people with alcohol use disorders may actually have depression. And so men, when they're depressed, may be drinking and engaging in antisocial behaviors, these de depressive equivalents. But what's really going on is that they're depressed. And a lady may be tearful and cry. And, you know, so it doesn't necessarily mean that men are not depressed. It's just that they're not manifesting in a characteristic way. And so with personality disorders, I think that we're not very good at recognizing dysfunction and coping amongst male patients. And that's why we may not be diagnosing 
these conditions, but we're clearly seeing that there are many men with personality disorders, even of the borderline type, the emotional instability, the impulsivity, which might be manifesting as gambling and various other problems. If we take a detailed history and talk to get collateral information, we may also make the diagnosis of personality disorder in those patients. So, Anthony, thank you so very much for that explanation. We are fortunate to have you because you currently work in a personality disorder unit of young women, most of whom have experienced sexual trauma. You have also worked in forensics in the history of your career. First off, personality disorders can be traced to several causes. How does it relate specifically to sexual trauma? What is sexual trauma, sexual assault, and what is the spectrum of this problem? Thank you so much um, for that question. And, and just listening to the question highlights for me why I suddenly have a very different paradigm or there's been a paradigm shift into how I look at personality or personality disorders as the case may be. Because yes, it's a specialist unit with young ladies who would be diagnosed with personality disorders when they're referred to us. But increasingly, I found myself thinking about them as victims of trauma rather than having a personality disorder. Remember, I started off by saying we all have a range of behavioral repertoire, the way we manage our emotions, the way we cope with stress. And for some of these personality disorders, the one you talked about, which is borderline, one of the key characteristics is emotional dysregulation. Then inappropriate coping skills or what we might say harmful behaviors as a way of coping with painful memories or as a way of substituting emotional pain for physical pain, which might be bearable or more or easier to manage. So where I'm getting at this is that I don't see these ladies anymore as people with personality disorders, but unfortunate victims of trauma who are coping as best as they can until they have the necessary psychological help and sometimes pharmacological interventions as well to make them go through the difficulties that they've experienced. So I tend to see most of my patients now as having complex post-traumatic stress disorder or complex PTSD for short, rather than having a personality um, disorder. And sexual trauma you ask, what is sexual trauma? It's a range of things. It's a very wide array of things, but it's basically a few things that we, we have to, to deal with. The first issue is consent and consent that is informed. So if people have been taken advantage of sexually and they didn't give consent to it, then that is trauma. And it doesn't necessarily have to be rape, any type of assault, inappropriate touching, looking at people in a way that degrades them. These are all traumatic incidents that can have long-lasting ramifications and repercussions for the victims. The society we live in as well affects that. You'd be surprised to know that one in five ladies here in the UK has been a victim of sexual trauma. One in five, that's quite a significant proportion of people considering 
what that does, the invasiveness of such an act committed another against another human being. But what's actually even worse is that only about 15% of those who've been victims report it. And the whole process of going through the report can be very, very traumatic. And we, we, we see this in the media when people are courageous enough to come forward. The jury's out. Some people disbelieve them, disparage them. And that just further worsens the, the trauma, especially for somebody who's already vulnerable in the first place. So that's, those are the kind of patients I see. And I think it's understandable that our physical body should be held, is sacred and shouldn't be in no way abused by another human being. And when it comes to the reproductive organs, there is an element of privacy. And when that privacy is breached, there is shame, there is loss of dignity. And so we can understand why people who've been victims of a breach of that our personal space have the feelings, the emotions I've just talked about, like shame, like guilt, confusion, especially when this happens when people are very young and and not fully aware of whatever is going on. And if you look at the statistics, I can't speak for the United States, but I don't think it'll be any different. A lot of these incidents of abuse and assaults are actually by people who would be known to the victim not just by any random person. So that also brings into the equation the issue of trust, or in this case, betrayal of trust. And so these are the complex dynamics that manifest in these unfortunate young ladies who now behave in certain ways as a way of coping with the traumatic memories. And so sometimes when we see people cutting themselves, inflicting or taking overdoses, it might be their own way of substituting a deep and unpleasant emotional pain for a physical pain that they can more manage and more control. So that's how I think sexual trauma leads to the emergence of some of these behaviors. So I've been very careful not to say personality disorder, but the emergence of some of these behaviors as a way of coping, because I don't believe that there's any human being who would go through this type of trauma that wouldn't react in that way. Well, thank you. You know, in an American College of OBGYN statement, exploration of gender identity, sexuality, relationships, and intimacy occur over a lifetime. And early adolescence is an important time for OBGYNs and families to engage teens about these subjects. During adolescence, individuals are still learning what is and is not acceptable behavior in romantic and sexual relationships, as well as in friendships. What are healthy relationships in adolescence? and in women in general? What should a healthy relationship look like? How important are factors like communication, honesty, and consent? And what kinds of behaviors make a relationship unhealthy? 
Thank you so much, um, Dr. Shobade. I think your, your, your question has actually um, elaborated on some of the things that I just mentioned. You've talked about consent in that question, in that. Well, I think that any healthy relationship is one that, or any relationship at all, if we, if we have to be factual about it, is an interaction between two people, almost like a contract. And there must be, it must be a bilateral, there must be, it must be neutral that both people are agreeing to get into it. And there must be a set of standards that both both individuals agree to respect or adhere to mutual respect. So I think any healthy relationship to some extent has to do with a healthy respect and appreciation of the other person. So it, it cannot be in any way controlling or demeaning. Now, that's a very difficult concept to discuss because there's a whole body of information out there from what I would call a sociocultural perspective that says women do this or men do that. Um, so I really want to get into that. But it's more of the mindset that if both people in a relationship feel that it's they're not being forced to be in that relationship and they can engage with each other from an equal playing field, then that would be, in my mind, a healthy relationship. Now, it comes back to what you talked about, which is awareness. And I remember when I was answering one of the other questions, they did say, sometimes when these assaults happen, one of the most difficult things for the people who are very young is the confusion, because they can't understand what's gone on. And so we have to, I think, that education about, our, about people's bodies and the right type of education about people's bodies so that in whatever happens, there is no guilt and there's no shame in a mutually acceptable way is promoted at all times. Now, we know that that has not always been the case. There are certain topics that have been taboo and people would be forced to find things out for themselves, seeking information um, from places where the information they're getting may not represent accurately what is. When I was growing up, you didn't have the internet like we have now. So I can imagine I'm not on any social media platforms, but, but I can imagine the dialogues <laughs> that people are exposed to. And so it's imperative right now that caregivers, parents, teachers, and to some extent, I actually think school boards or education boards have to very quickly agree what people need to know and start promoting that so that people get to know what is right to know before bizarre ideas start getting exposed to them. Because if they are exposed to bizarre ideas in the first instance, they may actually think that that's what is right. And so if young boys only see sexual violence as the way of sexual gratification on the internet, that may, they may feel that that's how relationships should be formed. And that may not be healthy because, again, um, there may not be consent or it may not be mutual respect. So I think there is certainly a place for, for that education in the current day world as we live in. Also as an OBGYN, I speak with my patients, especially my adolescent patients indeed about consent. And I think we will talk about this even more below. 
And I also speak to them about safe sex practices and their right to say no. And oftentimes, I'm the first one to broach these topics with a teen. And the information I provide, I know can be invaluable for the adolescent who has questions or is confused. And I know you talked about this some. How important are these conversations to form early, healthy approaches to relationships? Oh, I think yes, so important, Shavede, and I'm really delighted that you actually bring these conversations up. And I hope that there is a urological component to or urological analogy to this so we don't just keep this as a conversation between gynecologists and young ladies but urologists and young men as well have these conversations because i think it's a conversation that has to be had with the gender spectrum the gender spectrum the bottom line is yes is, is consent and also it's for anybody to understand that consent is not an all or non concept so it means that you could say yes at 3.45 and decide that it's no at 3.46. And every human being deserves, indeed is entitled to the right to change their minds. Because that's the true definition of an equal relationship where people know that they can continue for as long as it's comfortable and decide they do not want to continue in whatever aspect of the relationship is when it's no longer comfortable to do so. And I think that's critical. People have to be told across the gender spectrum that it's not wrong to change your mind and you have no reason whatsoever to feel in any way inferior or to have offended anybody by changing your mind. And if the relationship is healthy and respectful, that decision would be respected by the other part, the other party in the relationship or the other parties in the relationship. I think that's key to that conversation about consent. Some of the young men say, well, now you've walked me up, you know, and, you know, you've told me you wanted this and, you know, here I am, you know. And they get angry. So how, how do we, you know, manage it's, this? It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. But I actually think that that's a sense of entitlement that is built into the male condition. And I'll just give an anecdote here. You know, history, if you look at what's been written, it's always come from a male perspective, the lens of the, the, the man. It's his history is his story, not her story. Um, history is his story, not her story, which is which I think we've got to change that mindset and let men know that there's no entitlement here. Because the flip side could also, there must be many men, I'm sure urologists will encounter this, who may be going through a process and suddenly their bodies are not able to continue with that process. We don't hear that they now get beaten up by the ladies who are with them in that situation. You know? So why should men not understand that if for the men who are promoting that as an, an idea that, oh, I can't stop now. No. And I think that's how consent has to work. And that's what we need to start letting people know. I've never seen in any other transaction, if you're going to buy a car, 
you can change your mind. In fact, if you go to any shop, they can give you 28 days, sometimes six months to return something if you choose to change your mind about it. So why do men suddenly, <laughs> the proponents of this ideology, feel that, no, they have a right to get a yes, and that yes is indefinite. I, um, and that's how consent should work. Consent is time-specific, and it's very much like capacity. It's also to the very task specific to the or to whatever it is, and it can change at any time. That's the way consent should work. So what is enthusiastic consent? Yeah, I don't know that I've ever heard about that. Uh, but what I think, I'll have to research that concept. Um, but what I suspect is that people say, people may actually want to to differentiate between what's implied as an implied consent and what actually is categorically stated. So there's you know enthusiastic consent or enthusiasm, which I think is just a safeguard to be sure that there is no coercion in that transaction. I read an article once which I found very, very informative. And the article said, it doesn't matter if it's the most callous form of sexual violence or it is the most subtle kind of intellectual coercion. It is still an abuse of the other human being. So I think at different levels of societal development, it may be in two, 3,000 BC, you pinning somebody to the ground and taking advantage of them. And then it, it may be uh, very much like an indecent proposal kind of story in the 21st century world, the 20th century world, where you entice people and you confuse them and you manipulate them to take advantage of them, whichever form, the crudest physical form or the intellectual manipulation form, it's still taking advantage of the other human being. And also, it is means that the consent is not truly consent in that situation. And uh, I think that's where the enthusiastic consent comes in. So I think it's a safeguard to be sure that they're not taking advantage. And I'll just close by saying, comes back to that very first question you asked, which is what is a healthy risk relationship? If there's mutual respect, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. 